Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I was loud in my own head. That's much better. That is much better. Thank you, Andrew. All right. Should we pray again, or did you hear me? That's good. good. I, I, one of my, do any of you like poetry? Anybody? I figured just a few of you. A handful, right? Uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam, very long but beautiful poem. He's got a couple of stanzas that I really love. He says, our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. He says, our little systems have their day. Our systems of belief, he means. Our way of think, seeing the world. Our understanding of how God operates and the world works. We call that a system. Systematic theology or our way of understanding. They have their day. They're limited. They have their day and cease to be. They come to an end. They are but broken lights of thee, meaning at best, your way of understanding God and seeing the world is incomplete. It's a broken light. And thou, O Lord, art more than they. God is bigger than your understanding of him. Do you believe that? You're, you, you should. You have, a fine, you have a finite mind. He's infinite, right? So at best, my understanding is incomplete, and that means, by definition, I need more of God. And sometimes that means to get more of him, he's got to deal with my misunderstandings, and that can be painful, disorienting. And have you ever had that experience in life? Some experience of your life, some experience of loss or pain or grief or disappointment or confusion or whatever it is has caused you to say, I, this doesn't, this, my experience doesn't match up with my understanding of God. So my understanding needs to grow. Because God is infinite. Well, that, that idea is at the heart of the text we're going to look at from Mark chapter 7, the first 23 verses. That idea where Jesus is going to blow up the categories of the religious leaders of the day and his followers, his disciples. He's going to break their systems, if you will, because they have some misunderstandings. Some of them are really entrenched and stuck, and others of them are willing to change. And I think it's good for us to evaluate ourselves, which are we? as we go through. Um, this is precisely what's going to happen. It has to do with our understanding of what I would call religion. From time to time, I meet people in the gym or in the community or outside the church context who find out that I'm a pastor, which is always a fun little exchange when they realize that. I can see them replaying the tapes if I said anything that would be offensive to a pastor <laughs> in the last 10 minutes. And then they'll say things, I'll talk to them about the things of God, and they'll say things like, well, well, well I'm, I'm not very religious. And I always want to say, neither am I. 
In all sincerity, neither am I. But there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what religion is when we have that conversation. What is religion? And this is at the heart of this text. Does Jesus call people to be more religious? Does Jesus want you to be more religious? No. No, he doesn't. And if you're thinking, well, maybe he does, then we need to talk about what religion is and what it isn't. For many people, religion is bound up in, um, in tradition, in customs, in rituals that over time have very little to do with my everyday life. Maybe you grew up in a church like that. Go through the motions. Do the th- I, was, I did a funeral for a man who was named Gavin Hayes. He died as a, a Geneva fire chief, and it was a remarkable showing of respect and love for, uh, uh, from the fire department there. Many of his pallbearers and fire department uh, brothers-in-arms uh, in service were, were Catholic. And they called me Father Jeff <laughs> at the funeral. I'm like, well, not exactly, you know. And we had a conversation about what that meant, and they were very unfamiliar with anything but the rituals and customs, which had no connection to like a regular everyday life. So let's look at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. If you have your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen. I have my Bible, but it's no longer large print. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You ever wash your couch? And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother whatever he would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart, Of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So this passage might sound a little strange to us, a little like it's distant culturally from us. When you hear it at first, there's a lot that maybe needs some explanation. We do need some biblical, theological, historical context to make sense of it. So first of all, this group he's talking to initially are the scribes and the Pharisees. We hear a lot about them in the New Testament. Maybe you're wondering who they are, where they got their start. The scribes, going back to the time of Ezra, were a group of people in the, in the Hebrew tradition that basically translated the law. They recopied the law, so uh, wrote it down. 
But over time, the scribes, uh, Nehemiah 8 verse 8 says this about the scribes. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people could understand the reading. That's a great definition of a biblical teacher. It's one I aspire to. But over time, the scribes added things to the law. They not only read it and explained it, but they added traditions to it. And the Pharisees, about 200 years before Jesus, were an offshoot of the scribes, so out of the same group of people. And they were serious about keeping the law, very serious about it. They, they wanted to make sure people didn't transgress the law, that not only understood it, but they would keep them from breaking the law. And over time, what happened is that they developed a, a code of traditions. Did you notice in the reading, three times there's this reference, this phrase, the tradition of the elders? Anybody hear that? That is an oral tradition of, of extra uh, customs and rituals and traditions that eventually got written down and codified in what we now call the Mishnah. So when you see that phrase, the tradition of the elders, that's the oral tradition that would become the Mishnah. That's the Jewish uh, traditions that accompanied the law, the Torah, what we call the Old Testament. You with me? So you have the Old Testament, the inspired word of God, and these Jewish traditions that over time grew up and were written down and codified that they put on the same level as the word of God. And that's a problem. We're going to see why that's a problem in a few minutes. Um, Oral traditions eventually written down that the people saw and were taught that had the same authority as God's word. Now, it's not all bad. I think sometimes we read the New Testament, we think that the Pharisees are always the bad guys, and often they are. But their heart wasn't necessarily, they were earnest in their desire to keep people from breaking the law. They were serious about keeping people clean, that is, right before God, righteous, but these categories, sin, righteousness, defilement, I'm guessing those aren't words you use in your everyday conversation, right? Have you, are you defiled before you come into work, you know? <laughs> maybe maybe with, with coronavirus, we do use those kind of categories. We don't use that word. But they aren't categories we think of spiritually speaking. We don't really have the categories in our, in our contemporary culture to deal with what's being taught here. I don't know if you've ever heard of an author named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. It's outstanding. He's a secular uh, Jew. He's, not a, he's an atheist, actually, but he's a Jewish by, by culture. But a brilliant book. And another book he wrote called The Righteous Mind, he said there are six categories by which we talk about historically what's right and what's wrong, what's righteous or unrighteous, good or evil. Harm, oppression, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity or sacredness. Those six. So harm, oppression, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. He said we have entirely lost the capacity in our cultural moment to talk about the last two authority and sacredness. We talk almost exclusively in terms of the first three, right? Harm, oppression, and fairness. Isn't that true? You listen to any conversation in our culture about what's right or wrong, and people only talk about who's being harmed, who's being oppressed. Is it equitable or fair? That's the only way in our culture we talk about right and wrong. We don't even know how to talk about an authority beyond us, a morality that's outside of our understanding of harm or oppression. And Haidt, who's not a Christian, says this is a problem. This is why we have conflict. We don't, there's no authority we appeal to outside of ourselves. What does that have to do with the sermon? Hopefully something. But Jesus is, is, Jesus is not throwing out the categories. He's, say, he's redefining them for us. He's not saying morality doesn't matter. It just matter of, you know, be true to yourself and your own heart. He's not saying that. He's saying your understanding of what makes a person clean needs reshaping. 
He's going to overturn their false religion, expose their empty, empty traditions, but he's not going to throw out the categories of authority and morality. He's going to redefine them. So our culture deals with morality and traditions of the past by saying that stuff is, is stuffy and oppressive. What matters is be true to yourself, your inner voice. That's not Jesus' answer to tradition. He is saying tradition can be a problem. This is the first point. I know it took a while to get there, but we'll go fast. The trouble with tradition. The trouble with tradition. He's not saying traditions are necessarily bad. We're coming up on holiday season soon, Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, and, and you've got your traditions, I'm guessing, so do I. The things that you do in your family, in your community. My wife and I used to take our kids for a ride to see the Christmas lights, and we'd go to one neighborhood in Aurora where they, they, if you lived in that community, you had to put out the Christmas story in the old King James with the big books and so on. Uh, I can't remember the name of the street now. The na- Leonard's Avenue. There you go. Some of you know. Same traditions, right? <laughs> So but anyway, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with the tradition. And traditions, spiritually, if they help you connect to God, can be very good things. But what happens when traditions go toxic? When they prevent you, actually, from seeing and worshiping and following the heart of God. That's what Jesus is after. Jaroslav Pelikan, who's a, a Croatian a, a theologian, says, Tradition is the living faith of those now dead. It's not a bad thing. The living faith is a good thing of those that have gone before us. The Hebrew says we, we follow in the cloud of witnesses, right? The living faith of those that have gone before us. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still living. That's a bad thing. It's a dead faith. So that's what Jesus is after here in this passage. The dead faith. that has no life in it. So, okay, what, what's with the washing story? Remember that, Jesus? The, the Pharisees and the scribes say to Jesus, not actually, they criticize Jesus for the behavior of his followers. They say they're not washing according to the traditions of the elders. Now, this, first of all, is not an issue of personal hygiene. Remember when the, when the, when the pandemic started? It seems like 20 years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Remember that? And it, there, were lots of, <laughs> there were lots of public service announcements on every news channel about how to wash your hands. Like, I, it was a little bit disconcerting. Have we never washed our hands before? I remember one guy was saying, you have to sing happy birthday. That's the length of time. Happy birthday to you. Like, that's how long you should wash your hands. Like, what? Make sure you get the backside, Dr. Fauci told us. Like you have to, that's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about personal cleanliness. They're talking about ritual purity. They're talking about what makes a person clean before God. In other words, right standing before God, not defiled, acceptable in the sight of God. That's at the heart of this whole conversation. In verse 5, he says, according to the tradition. So the, the Pharisees and scribes don't say, why don't your disciples obey the law of God? They say, why don't they obey the tradition of the elders? Because they had put those on equal footing. And the Pharisees used a phrase called building a fence around the Torah. Anybody heard that phrase before? Building a fence. The Torah means the law of God. It's properly understood, the Ten Commandments, but the law, the the first five books of of the Old Testament. Building a fence means you build a perimeter around the law so nobody would go near. Like if I don't want to step off this stage, my best, the best guess is I should not stand right on the edge like this. I'm, I'm liable to fall off, right? But stand far, far away from it, as far as I can get. So they built traditions and customs around the law to keep people away from transgressing the law. Like you walk by a, jo- a construction site and you see a big chain link fence because there's a hole in there and there's jagged metal and there's broken pieces of whatever and you, they don't want anybody to hurt themselves, so they build a fence around it. Same idea, spiritually speaking. Or moms, uh, if you don't want your kids to get mud on the new carpet, you might say, the family rule is you take your shoes off in the garage. Or if you were me when I was a child, you would get ho- stripped down, Jeffrey, and get hosed off in the garage, right? <laughs> right? 
But the point is not the hose. It's I don't want you getting dirt on my new carpet. So I, I back up from there and build traditions and customs and rules and regulations that keep you from transgressing or breaking the law. But what if the hose becomes sacred? What if the water becomes spiritual? And you can't be right until you're hosed off in a particular way, right? That's what, over time, would have happened to people. They thought of these things as what made them acceptable to God. I remember years ago when I was first uh, on staff here, uh, back then we had one campus, the South Street campus, and uh, we, pastors wore a tie to preach. And I asked Brian if I had to. And he said, no. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And an, old, an older gentleman wrote a letter to Pastor Brian asking why that young guy won't wear a tie. <laughs> and he, he talked to me personally. And he stuck his finger at me. He says, what's it going to take to get you to honor God by wearing a tie in church? I forgot mine today. Right? But it happened, right? That's the, I couldn't even hear the message of the scriptures because you aren't wearing a tie. One of the best signs of a healthy church is that its people are most excited about what matters most to God. One of the signs of an unhealthy church is that people are most passionate and fired up about the stuff that is not central to the gospel. We've been a part of that. You've seen that, haven't you, at times? Christians who are angry and yelling on Facebook or social media or in person about stuff that is not central to the gospel, judging each other, condemning each other. One of the best signs of a healthy gospel community is that we're most excited about stuff that's most central to the word of God. So let me ask you, what gets you most fired up? What makes you most excited? Masks? No masks? Vaccines? Vaccine mandates? What gets you angrier, passionate, or excited? Politics? The Bears beating Tom Brady? Right? Or, or is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it the fact that he died for your sin and forgave you and redeemed your life and has given you hope of eternity and called you into a community where you can call each other brother and sister? That, forgive us, Lord, that we would get so fired up about stuff that doesn't matter to your heart. I'm not saying it has no implication, doesn't matter at all. I'm saying when in comparison to Christ, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 said, right, I consider all things a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He's supreme and he matters most. May that be true of us as a church. Okay, second, the heart of a hypocrite. The heart of a hypocrite. We, we think of a hypocrite as what? What's a word you associate with hypocrite today? Phony, fake, somebody who says one thing but does another, right? Intentionally pretends, a play actor. And that's our cultural definition. But that's not exactly how Jesus uses the term in this text. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 of Mark chapter 7 once more. He says, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Now, this is funny. So they've just said, hey, why don't your disciples wash according to the traditions. And Jesus doesn't explain to them. He just goes, you hypocrites. He goes right after them. He doesn't even engage with their question. These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. It seems that in Jesus' terms, a hypocrite is somebody who has external obedience with no internal heart or passion or love. So it's not necessarily somebody who's a fake, because the, the Pharisees were earnest in their desire to be good externally. 
But there was no internal love for God. There was no transformation happening. So sometimes, I once talked to a young man who said, listen, I, I don't want to go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What he meant was he was not living in a way that he knew God wanted, so he thought going to church would make him a hypocrite. I don't want to go there because I'll be a hypocrite. I mean, it's not hypocritical to go to church if you don't feel like it. That's maturity, recognizing I need it. I need worship. I need the word. I need community. Tradition turns toxic, we're told in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's the issue. That's the primary issue. Hypocrisy is pursuing tradition over Jesus. Now, in the next few verses, Jesus gives us a kind of case study for what he's talking about. We won't see it on the screen, but you remember Korban, that phrase Korban? So let me just explain in brief, if you've never heard this before, what's going on. In Leviticus 27, there are laws given to God's people about making vows and dedications to the Lord. You could take some property, uh, some livestock, things that you own, and dedicate them to the Lord, meaning when you die, they would go to the temple, the service of the priests, or to, to God's work. But you, they were yours until that point. Um, in Jesus' day, this had become kind of a weird deferred giving plan, where people could say, uh, d- declare my, half my estate korban, meaning it's dedicated to the Lord. You can't touch it. I get to enjoy it and look spiritual in the process, and eventually when I die, it goes to the Lord. But the example Jesus gives is what happens if your mother and father fall on hard times, are sick or in need of help, need financial assistance, need care, and they don't have the resources. And you're called to honor your father and mother, one of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, it's the centerpiece, one of the centerpieces of the law, right? And you say, well, mom and dad, I know I have this seven-bedroom house and this estate, but technically it's Korban. It's God's. So, sorry, right? <laughs> That's what's going on in Jesus' day. That's going on in Jesus' day. And Jesus, and Jesus is saying, how, how, how dare you? How tragic. You've actually used your tradition to nullify the word of God. You've not just put it on the same level. You've put it over top of the word of God. You're breaking God's law by your tradition. It's serious business. Making void the word of God by your tradition. How And by the way, this cuts across liberal and conservative churches. Nobody's immune to this. How sad and tragic of us if if, if it's the nice new campus, the familiar songs, the people that we like, our usual seats. This is our religion. I feel good every Sunday. But I'm not near the heart of God. I think it happens all, all across our community, our country, the world. People going through the motions, feeling good about themselves and far from the heart of God. May it be true of us that we hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ even if it means leaving behind some traditions, some things we prefer, some things we like. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Some of you might be thinking, listen, I'm not one for tradition anyway, so this is fine. I'm I'm off the hook. This is not my issue. What I notice is some people would dismiss tradition of their parents, of of the previous generation, but they do the same thing with their opinions and preferences. Here's what I mean. I've heard people say things like, well, I can't believe in a literal hell. Well, I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. And if I say to them, well, what if I could show you in the scriptures where God teaches the very thing that you can't believe in? Doesn't matter because I can't believe in that. 
What are we doing? We're taking our opinion and saying, I don't like it. Therefore, I'm putting it above the word of God. Now, the last section we're going to look at is really the heart of what Jesus is driving at. So really, all of this is a preamble to the heart of what he's talking about in this last section of the passage. I'm always talking to Andrew about staying on time in the sermons, and I'm going to break that rule this morning. So you'll, I know you'll talk to me about this on Thursday at our preaching team meetings. <laughs> so this last section is called The Question of Cleanness. The Question of Cleanness. This is the fundamental human need, by the way, and desire to be clean. To be right before God. Let's look at verses 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I don't think it's possible to overstate how, how mind-blowing those two verses would have been to a first-century Jewish mind. It doesn't sound that way to us, but it's crazy talk. Their whole worldview was predicated on avoiding the unclean things. Don't get defiled. And Jesus is saying, nothing outside of you can make you unclean. What? This is why the disciples in a couple of verses pull them aside and when they go in the house and go, what are you talking about, Jesus? This makes no sense to us. We'll read on. If I could find my place. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. He's getting a little graphic there. Thus he declared all foods clean. That phrase in parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean? To a Jewish mind? What? Have you not read Leviticus, Jesus? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, that's not an exhaustive list of sins. It it's a, it's a, illustrates the point he's making. This is, it's really profound. The disciples pull Jesus aside after the crowds have gone. They go into the house and say, hey, our whole way of life is about avoiding uncleanness, keeping clean. And there are whole rituals about if you, if you get defiled or, or made unclean, intentionally or unintentionally, there's a lot of things, you, hoops you have to jump through to get clean again. How can you just say, Jesus, that that's all out now? It'd be like if you came to church and Andrew stood up here and said, from now on, the F word is good for Christians. <laughs> what? No, that's not? He's not going to say that? It's not. But it would be so crazy to you, is my point. Remember that our little systems have their day? They have their day and cease to be. Jesus is blowing up their understanding of what it means to be right before God. And it's crucial for us. We have an equally difficult time grasping what he's saying here, but for different reasons. In his book on this very passage, Timothy Keller on the King's Cross says, the state in which, he's actually quoting Franz Kafka here from one of his memoirs. The state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. And Keller comments on that. In other words, we live in a world now where we don't believe in judgment, we don't believe in sin, and yet we still feel there's something wrong with us. That is so true. We, but now we have whole studies and fields of psychology telling you there's nothing wrong with you, and those are the oppressive voices of the past, 
Be true to yourself. You're good as you are. But yet, we, even the fact that people are trying to convince us of that tells us we know better. We know different. We don't like the categories of sin and judgment and defilement and righteousness. We don't talk that way. But deep down inside, you know and I know I ought to be better than I am. And you ought to be better than you are. No one needs to tell you that. You live with it. We suppress it. We ignore it. We try to anesthetize it or dress it up. But we all feel it. I'm not clean. I'm not right before God. Like that young man who said, I don't want to go to church because I'll be a hypocrite. He knows He's not living in a way that would be honoring to God. So the question hanging out there is, how does a person get clean? How does it happen? This whole story about traditions and korban and washing and all this stuff is about that central question. How does a person get clean? To answer this question, Jesus first shows us what makes us unclean. And that's important because that's their misunderstanding. You can't understand how you're cleaned, how you're right before God, until you understand why you're not. And to the Jewish mind, they're thinking, I'm not because I, I, have, I have come in contact with those people, with those things. It's a fundamental misunderstanding. It's not what you eat, touch, or do on the outside. It's not external that makes you unclean. So it's not the case that you and I are fine as we are as long as we don't do the bad stuff. You cannot clean yourself through moral effort. That is religion. And Jesus is not interested in you being more religious. There's no life in that. Because your problem is deeper than that. It's a matter of your heart. He gets a bit graphic, doesn't he? He says the, the things that come into us go into our stomach, koilia, but they don't touch the heart, cardia. He's a little play on words here in Greek. So, and they are expelled. <laughs> so he's saying like, he's, he's, he's being a little bit graphic on purpose. He's, the coilia is your stomach and intestines and bowels. Cardia is your heart, not just the pumping organ, but your inner self. He's saying the foods you eat go into you physically and come out physically, but they don't touch the inner self. And that's already defiled because of sin. That's what he's after. How can Jesus say all foods are now clean? Remember Peter's vision in Acts? with the sheet descending from heaven and all the different animals on it. It's a little bit weird. It's, it's all about the same issue. It was so hard. Jesus says it here, but it took Peter a while to get that. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, something that you may know, but it's so profound for this section. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's crucial. He's not saying I'm throwing them out. I've completed them. I've fulfilled them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus is saying, I am cleanness. I don't tell you how to get clean. I don't give you the five principles of being clean. I don't show you the ten steps to be clean. I am clean. I am cleanness. Anyone that comes into contact with me is made clean. Remember the story of the healing of the leper? Lepers were the symbolic representation of, of uncleanness in the first century world. They had to yell out unclean for crying out loud when they walked down the streets so no one would come in contact with them. Jesus touches the leper before he pronounces them clean. And the leper's made clean because the touch of Jesus makes you clean. He cannot be defiled. He is cleanness. What does that tell you? How do you get clean? Yes, by the touch 
of the Savior. You let him clean you. This is, it's, it's really simple. It's either outside in or it's inside out. If you've got your mark journals and you want to jot something down, that's the whole story is about that. Outside in religion cannot clean you. But inside out is the gospel, the one who makes you clean. You remember the phrase Jesus says in Luke 6, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks? Have you heard that before? Anybody, have you ever, have you ever said something and thought, oh, I didn't mean to say that? Or, or thought, where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. Jesus tells you where it came from. It's in you. That's why you said it. It's in me. That's why I said it. Oh, that's not me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's in there. But that's his point. The gospel tells you you are worse than you want to admit. But you can be better than you ever imagined because of Jesus. It's not you're a little bit bad and a little bit good. It's not, oh, don't worry about those oppressive voices about sin. You're a good person. Just believe it. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Right? (laughs) That's not the gospel either. It's I'm worse than I want to admit. But the grace of Jesus can make me clean in a way I never thought possible. This is category shattering then and now. Jesus tells you how you get clean. God cares nothing about our religion. You know, in, in, in Psalm 51, David has sinned greatly and he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, because I can't do it. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Renew it in me, because I've made a mess of it. I'm defiled, I'm sinful, and I see that. My best efforts to do good fall short, and the stuff I don't want to do, Romans 7 tells us, I, I don't want to do, I do. What's wrong with me? Only Jesus has the answer and the antidote to that question. And then later in that same psalm, David says, A broken heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite spirit. These are the sacrifices of God. The only kind of heart that Jesus can heal is a broken one. A proud and stubborn and religious one, he can't do much with. This is the Pharisees, right? That's the question of the morning. Which are you? Which am I? None of us are clean on our own, and I cannot clean myself. Jesus says, will you give me your heart, broken and unclean and filthy as it is, and let me work on it? I can forgive it. I can restore it. I can heal it. And when that happens, that's all the church is, is people with their filthy hearts coming to Jesus and being made clean. And we get together, we worship him because we forget that's true, and we remember as we sing these songs, oh, that's right. And we get excited about that, not the other stuff that the world's going crazy about. And we open his word, and he reminds us again who he is and who we are. And then we're filled up to go out and talk about the grace that makes us clean to people who are also unclean. Not telling them, unclean, unclean, right? We're the clean ones. That's not the point. Perhaps the passage that best describes this whole idea of what it means to belong to Jesus and be made clean is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 19 through 21. I love this passage. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you 
on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In this last verse, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's another phrase for clean. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you so that in him you might be cleaned and become the righteousness of God. So that when God looks at you, as screwed up and messed up as I am, he doesn't see my past and my present. He sees his son covered in righteousness. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his followers and the religious leaders of the day who are so confused about what matters. And I think we have the same confusions. It takes different shape today. We have the same issues. And some of you can come. I know this is true. I know it's true in this room. There are some of you here who have been going to church your whole life, but you don't really know what it means to be made clean by Jesus. You're still trying to work off some past debt. And you can't. But he can. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace, which is it's, it's category-shattering in the first century and in the 21st century. It's beyond comprehension and it's true, and it's good, and it's amazing. We thank you for your gospel. Lord, forgive us when we elevate our preferences, our opinions, and our traditions above the, the, the authority of your word. Help us to be people that live under the authority of your word, not because it's oppressing us and holding us down, but because it liberates us by your grace, Jesus. Thank you that we cannot make ourselves clean, no matter how hard we try, but you can and you have at the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen.